0: You know, he's passing the third guy to come in for the interview, and he kind of mentions to him, he said, hey, whatever you do, don't mention the fact that he doesn't have any ears. He gets really angry. And so the third guy walks in, and he sits down, and the interviewer looks at him and says, do you notice anything different about me? And the guy looks at him real close, and he says, yeah, yeah, you wear contacts. And and, and he says, man, that's perceptive. How did you know that? Because you don't have any ears to hang your glasses on. Well, if you need a Bible tonight, if you'd raise your hand, we'll be happy to get you a Bible. Anybody need a Bible? This sweet young lady right down front, Brian, needs a Bible. Pretty and sweet and young lady right down here on the front row. Kathy, don't worry. Kathy looked at me real strange. Matthew chapter 3. And would you join me in prayer before we begin? Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we work our way through these chapters, Lord, that you would work your way into our hearts, into our minds into our living, into our breathing. Lord, help us to be able to resist temptation. Help us, Lord, to have the power to live the Christian life. Help us, Lord, to be about the work of Jesus, spreading His love and truth to this needy world around us. Lord, we ask that You do a good work in our hearts tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When a young Edmund was tucked into bed at night, his British mother would always pray a prayer. They would pray together, he and his mom. And at the close of the prayer, Mrs. Allenby would always add this prayer. Lord, we would not forget your ancient people Israel. Hasten the day when Israel shall again be your people and shall be restored to your favor and to their land. Now fast forward about 50 years to the year 1917. The world is at war. A brave general leads the Brits into battle against the Turks. The British liberate Palestine and Jerusalem. Suddenly doors swing open for Jews to return to their homeland from all over the world. And who is this victorious general who leads the battle? It was Field Marshal Edmund Allenby, the young boy whose mother would pray that prayer. Today there is a bridge in southern Israel, just north of the Dead Sea. It crosses the Jordan River, and it links the countries of Israel and Jordan. It's named after Edmund. It's known as the Allenby Bridge. And just a few miles south of the bridge, there in the Judean wilderness, there is a spring that feeds the Jordan River. The locals call it Wadi Gerar, G- but the Bible refers to it as Bethabara. This is the location of what happens here in Matthew chapter 3. For here another brave general is used by God to announce the liberation of God's ancient people. His prayer was also to restore God's favor to Israel. Verse 1 introduces him. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thirty years have now elapsed between chapters 2 and chapters 3. Jesus has been living in obscurity in a tiny Galilean village called Nazareth. He's been working as the local carpenter. But now stirrings are occurring down in the wilderness. For Jesus' cousin, a man named John the Baptizer, is announcing the coming of the kingdom. And he's calling God's people to repent. Notice John's message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll notice in the Gospels, the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. Heaven is God's throne. And Matthew obviously prefers the term kingdom of heaven. For in his gospel, he uses it 32 times compared to just five times the kingdom of God. And there's a good reason for this. Remember, Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews. And at the time, the Jews were looking for the coming of God's kingdom. But they were expecting an earthly, physical, political kingdom. A kingdom of institutions and constitutions and revolutions. They were looking for a materialistic solution. That's not the kingdom that John and Jesus envisioned. God's kingdom would be a heavenly, not an earthly kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God doesn't consist of troops or buildings or capitals. It's not a spot on the map that you can point to. God's kingdom consists of the values of heaven. When people submit to God as king, and align their lives around God's will, suddenly the values of heaven come to earth. When people submit to God, the kingdom of God comes in their hearts. And if you want to be a member of that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, then you need to repent and submit. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, whenever Billy Graham comes to a town for a citywide evangelistic crusade, The meetings usually run a few days. In fact, Billy Graham's probably in town about a week. But what many people don't realize is that the organization sends an advance man. He comes to to town up to a year ahead of time. He actually sets up a residence in the city. He's there to make arrangements, work out details. Well, Jesus too had an advance man, a forerunner. In fact, Matthew quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was the forerunner predicted by Isaiah. And what a bizarre character he was. John the baptizer. Verse 4 tells us, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was a wild man. He was an outdoorsman. He was sort of a Jewish Paul Bunyan. And John was anti-establishment. His dress and his diet were a protest. I like to refer to John as the original hippie. While the Jewish priests wore their expensive robes and their fancy big belts, John wore a camel's hair robe and a strap of leather he wrapped around his waist. Rather than eat in Jerusalem's gourmet restaurants, John took his food with him. He carried a pocket full of trail mix everywhere he went. Locusts and wild honey. Gourmet grasshopper. You could say John was into organic food. Understand, John's dress and his diet were all carefully choreographed. In Malachi chapter 4, the Old Testament closes with a prophecy of the end times and the coming of the Messiah. And it predicts that Elijah will appear before Messiah's coming. This is why John dressed like Elijah. In Second Kings chapter 1 verse 8 it says, Elijah was a hairy man and wore a leather belt around his waist. In fact, tradition says that John's coat, his camel's hair coat, was actually the mantle or the cloak that had been worn by the prophet Elijah. That the garment had been stored in the temple, and it had been retrieved by John's dad, Zechariah the priest. Remember when the angel appeared to Zechariah at the birth of his son? He said of John that he would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. God associated John and Elijah. Both men had fiery personalities. Both men had great zeal for God. It's also interesting. The area where John preached, the area around Bethabara. this was the site of the fiery chariot that descended from heaven and picked up Elijah. This is where it took him to heaven. This is where the chariot touched down. Since the Jews associated the coming of the Messiah with the prophet Elijah, John went to great effort to identify with Elijah. Verse 5 tells us, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John not only preached, he baptized. And his baptism was a new practice. Understanding Judaism, Gentiles who were converted were then baptized, but never were the Jews baptized Jews were never baptized and yet here John was baptizing Jews he was using baptism to announce the person's intention to turn from sin and to turn to God you know it's interesting that John's baptismal site south of the Allenby Bridge is also the place where Joshua led Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land after wandering in rebellion for 40 years the Hebrews finally obeyed God by crossing the river. They left an old life behind them by passing through the waters into a new life. No doubt this setting helped to emphasize the imagery and the purpose of John's baptism. For Basically it said the same thing. It's the passing away of an old life and it's entering into a new life. And Jews from all over the region. Even the big city of Jerusalem, they were all flocking down. They were traveling into the wilderness to see John and to hear his message. He was creating quite a stir. It's been said of John's ministry, without gimmicks or gadgets, without a mailing list or even a miracle, the crowds flocked to John. What he did possess was a dedicated life, a humble attitude, a message from God, and the power of the Spirit. The church today... Could learn from John's example I agree John never worked a miracle that we know of yet the people marveled at his zeal for God John's ministry combined three elements the logos of God's word the ethos of Christian ethics and morality and the pathos or passion a heart on fire for God and when you mix those three things together The logos of the word, the ethos or a godly life, and the pathos or passion for God, you've got a man that people will want to hear, that will make an impact for God's kingdom. Like John the Baptist, such a man will be effective for God. Well, common Jews were not the only people who had come down to check out John. Notice, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, Isn't it interesting whenever God's Spirit does a work there will always be religious authorities who will want to come out and try to take control. They'll feel the need to officially sanction what God is doing as if God needs their approval to do it. This is why these Jewish leaders come down to check out John. Understand the Sadducees they were liberals. The Pharisees they were the legalists. But they were all hypocrites. And that's why John greets them with such a warm welcome. Brood of vipers, he calls them. You bunch of venomous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. I hope you know that repentance is more than just remorse. It's more than just feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance is more than tears. True repentance is a desire, it's a willingness to change. It's the willingness to rearrange my life in ways that prevent me from sinning again. That's true repentance. True repentance involves renewing my commitment and reacquiring God's power and restructuring my time and renewing my thoughts and rearranging my schedule and reassessing my friends and recruiting some accountability Hey, there will be tangible evidence of sincere repentance. Repentance bears fruit. Reminds me of the Jew who moved into a Catholic neighborhood, and every Friday he drove the Catholics crazy. While they were trying to limit their diet to fish, this Jewish man was out in his backyard grilling out these delicious smelling steaks. Man. And the Catholics couldn't stand it. They decided what they would do is they'd try to convert the Jew. After months and months of effort, they finally succeeded. The Jew was taken down to the priest. He sprinkled him with water. And then he said, born a Jew, raised a Jew, now a Catholic. The Roman Catholics, they were ecstatic. Now they could eat their fish on Fridays without having to fight these tempting smells of steak. But the next Friday, again, the scent of steak sort of wafted through the neighborhood. And the Catholics rushed over to the Jewish man's house to remind him of his Catholic diet. And there they found him standing over his grill, over these sizzling steaks. He had a knife in one hand, and he had a little rag. He was dipping in the water with his other hand. And there he was, sprinkling the meat, saying, Born a cow, raised a cow, now a fish. Hey, my point is true conversion will produce fruits worthy of repentance. If you truly repent, people around you will see a change. There's a problem if it's the same old, same old after you're baptized. Verse 9, John says, And do not think to say to yourselves, We are Abraham, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The Jews were trusting in their pedigree, their birth certificate. They thought that family connection was a substitute for true faith. Not so. John says to them, just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't make you a child of God. Just because you go to Calvary Chapel doesn't make you a child of God. You know, it takes true heartfelt repentance and faith. He says, and even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, judgment has come. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hey, the fruit of your life will reveal the root of your life. Good roots produce good shoots. Watch the ideas and the behavior that flow out of a person long enough and you'll get a good indication of what's in their heart. And this is why John knew that his water baptism was only the first step. Notice what he says in verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John showed folks that they needed to change. But John was powerless to affect those changes that they needed. Water baptism was the symbol of a change, not its source. It was the symbol of the change. The change agent is the Holy Spirit. You see, John baptized with water. But only Jesus can baptize us with the power of the Holy Spirit. John paved the way, but John was not the way. We need Jesus to work in our hearts and to baptize us with this power, this boldness to be a witness, this boldness to resist temptation, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm convinced that the same problem exists today. Too many people today know only the baptism of John. They come to church, they're convicted of their sin, They leave all fired up, all determined to resist temptation and walk in victory. They've turned from their sin. But Satan is powerful and his temptations are strong. And it doesn't take long for Satan to pull them right back into his web. It's as if he has them on a string. They're repeatedly remorseful, but they can't break free. You see, here's the problem. It's hard to turn from a temptation And not turn back to that temptation unless I can turn to something more powerful than that temptation. This is why I need to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus floods me with His love and with His joy and with His peace and with His power, all stronger than the lures of Satan, when I'm caught up in the influence of God, the desire to sin is diminished. Hey, if you long for victory tonight, I want you to ask Jesus to baptize you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 11 closes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And some people interpret the fire here as passion and zeal. I personally believe it speaks of judgment. For verse 12 follows. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, the Spirit's baptism is part of God's harvest. There are two types of kernels. There's the wheat, and there's the chaff. There's the good, there's the bad, there's those who believe, and there's those who don't believe, the unbelievers. There are really just two destinies. There's the barn and the fire. There's heaven and there's hell. Here's God's intention for every human. In the end, you're either juiced or you're judged. In other words, you're either baptized with the Holy Spirit or you're baptized with fire. It's one or the other. He says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John was reluctant. He felt unworthy to baptize Jesus. He knew Jesus. John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Apparently, Jesus was immersed he was dunked. Now, I'm not a Baptist. had not been a Baptist for a long, long time. I'm just a Bible-believing Christian. But as I read the Bible, if you want to be baptized like Jesus was baptized, you need to be dunked. That's how Jesus was baptized. But well, when He came up out of the water, behold, the heavens were open to Him. And He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove And alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hey, Jesus was baptized for three reasons. You can write these down. To reveal, to relate, and to reaffirm. His baptism revealed to the crowd that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, wow. The Father spoke. They heard His voice audibly. They saw the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. People heard the voice. They saw the dove. Heaven had spoken. It was a powerful testimony to the people. But His baptism was also a way for Jesus to relate to folks who would eventually follow Him. You know, we're baptized to identify with Jesus. Therefore, Jesus was baptized to identify with us. And lastly, Jesus' baptism reaffirmed to him his own identity. As we talked about this morning, theologians debate as to when Jesus became conscious of his true identity and destiny. I believe Jesus somehow knew he was from God, that he was God in the flesh, even from his mother's womb. But at his baptism, it was all affirmed to him in an undeniable way. Jesus' baptism became his final preparation For his ministry. As we mentioned. There's a 30 plus. Gap of years. Between chapters 2 and chapters 3. The gospels cover the events. Surrounding Jesus' birth. And with a few exceptions. Then the last three and a half years. Of his life. But what happened in between? What happened for all of those silent years? Before his arrival now. At the Jordan. Have you ever wondered that? There have been all kinds of. Theories and all kinds of hypotheses of Jesus's silent years, what He did, where He went. In one sense, we have no idea. Where did Jesus go to school? Who were His influences? What about His jobs or the places He visited? They're all unknown to us. But in another sense, we know exactly what Jesus did during those 30 plus silent years. For at His baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, and declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That says to me that whatever Jesus did, wherever Jesus went, He did only those things that pleased His Father. Jesus was without sin. Well, chapter 4 begins, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's important to realize that this was not a surprise attack. Satan didn't orchestrate this encounter. Jesus was being led by the Spirit to be tempted. And as we said this morning, often when we encounter temptation, we assume that we made a wrong turn somewhere along the way. Not necessarily. God uses temptation to test us and to toughen us and to tune up our faith. It's not Satan, but it's the Holy Spirit who calls the shots when we're tempted. He says, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry talk about stating the obvious I can't go 40 hours without food let alone 40 days I miss a meal and man I'm a baby I'm famished, I'm dying, I'm fasting I can't function it's no surprise Satan tempts Jesus at his weakest moment Jesus' energy is depleted his defenses are down It's then that the roaring lion comes in for the kill. Hey, Jesus is watching you, and he's waiting for that same moment of weakness, that vulnerable time in your life. Be prepared. Be ready. Notice the enemy's first temptation. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, when I ask, what's the first temptation Satan throws at Jesus? Most people answer, turn the stones into bread. But that's not actually the first temptation. Look again at what Satan says in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. He uses the same bait in verse 6. Satan wants Jesus to doubt his identity. And in an attempt, and in doing so, make an attempt to try to prove who he is. Jesus would have made a mistake in doing so. This is why Jesus' baptism was so pivotal a preparation. There God affirmed Jesus' identity to him in an undeniable way just before he was tempted. And now when Satan comes and says, If you are the Son of God, Jesus is confident. He's assured, Yes, I'm the Son of God. He knows who he is. He's sure of his identity. But I'm convinced this is also Satan's first line of attack with us. For if the devil can get you to doubt your relationship with God, if he can cause you to question your connection with God, then he can cut you off from your supply line. He can break up your communication with headquarters. But if we know we're God's kids, then we can trust Jesus and we can draw strength from Jesus. Hey, when the devil comes to tempt you, remind him that you belong to Jesus. Well, in verse 3, Satan tempts Jesus. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But notice the weapon Jesus uses to defend himself against Satan. He quotes Scripture. All three times he's tempted, Jesus counters those temptations by quoting God's Word. Jesus pulls the sword of the Spirit from his scabbard. And he slays the devil with God's written word. Guys, I'm telling you, the Bible is a powerful, effective tool for spiritual warfare. Study it. Apply it. Then use it against the devil. I love the story in 2 Samuel 23 about Eleazar, son of Dodo. But this Eleazar was no Dodo. He was one of David's mighty men. In fact, it's reported of Eleazar that he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Eleazar clutched his sword so tightly that when he was done, he couldn't pry his hand off the handle. It was the vice grip on his sword that led to his victory. And if you want to win victories over temptation, if you want to win victories for God, then hey, Don't be a dodo. Grab hold of God's word and don't let go. Get a grip on God's word. And God will use his word to slay the devil in your life. Well, back to Jesus here in verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written. And here he quotes again from the law, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To Jesus, these words of God were more important than his daily bread. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And notice this time Satan quotes scripture. Satan is telling Jesus he's not the only person who reads the Bible. Satan quotes two verses here from Psalm 91. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I hope we all realize that Satan is quite a Bible scholar. He knows the scriptures from cover to cover, inside and out. And he specializes in twisting them and distorting their clear meaning, just as he does right here. Jesus counters him. He says to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus fires back Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 with the correct and the balanced view. Yes, God promises to protect us when we live and move within His will. But if we knowingly and deliberately and foolishly step outside the boundaries of God's will, hey, you might just find yourself on your own. Tempt God, test His patience, and He might just let you suffer the consequences of your actions. God is the author of reality therapy. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Again, as we mentioned this morning, this was a test of patience. The Father in heaven had already promised Jesus the kingdoms of this world. Satan was just offering it to him now. Why wait, Jesus? In essence, Satan was saying, why suffer the rigors of the cross when I can give the world to you right now? How often are we tempted to sidestep or to avoid the cross, the cost of commitment in our lives, in our relationship with God? You see, in God's economy, giving precedes getting. Sowing comes before reaping. Suffering often comes before blessing, serving, then ruling. The cross comes first, then the crown. When Satan comes to you with those shortcuts, resist that temptation. Finally, the Lord has had enough. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And once more, Jesus quotes the word. This time, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 And 10 verse 20. Then the devil left him. And behold angels came. And ministered to him. You'll recall in 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. We're told the attitudes. The philosophies. That make the world go round. There John writes. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. Is not of the father. But is of the world here are three universal temptations that Satan has used on all people in all times in fact these are the same temptations he used on Jesus and friend these are the same temptations that will be thrown at you tomorrow the lust of the flesh Satan comes he tempts us with the desire to feel great the lust of the eyes he comes and he says man you do this and you'll look great And the pride of life, follow me, follow this, and you'll be great. You'll find that every temptation of Satan appeals to us along one of these three lines. Feel great. Look great. Be great. Satan used the same formula to tempt Jesus. Turn these stones to bread. Jesus, you don't have to starve. You can feel great. Throw yourself off the temple and command the angels to catch you. You'll look great. Man, you'll be on the nightly news. You'll become famous. Bow to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You can be great. Rather than yield to these temptations to feel great or look great or be great, to grab what he could from this life, Jesus made his decisions based on his relationship with God. He placed purpose above pleasure. He placed... Character above attention and fame. He placed eternity above now. Because Jesus knew who he was spiritually, he chose the spiritual over the physical, the internal over the external, and the eternal over the temporal. When Satan comes to you, hey, do this, you can feel great. Hey, try this, you can look great. Oh, be this, and you will be great. Make sure you understand there's another side of the story. If you want to feel God's pleasure, if you want to be pleasing in His sight, if you want to be great in His kingdom, say no to those temptations. Follow after Jesus. Well, Verse 12 tells us, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Evidently, John's incarceration was a divine signal for Jesus to begin his ministry. John had said, He must increase, but I must decrease. As John exits the stage, Jesus moves to center stage. Verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Capernaum means village of Nahum. and It was a little fishing village there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, had a population of around 1,500 people. Capernaum will now serve as Jesus' headquarters for his next three and a half years of ministry. Matthew also tells us that Jesus dwelt in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. It's interesting, the major caravan route from Mesopotamia to Egypt passed through the Galilee. It was known as the Via Maris, Latin for the way of the sea. It's mentioned here. Isaiah 9 had predicted that the people living along the way of the sea or the Via Maris would see a great light. Jesus would walk this road for the next three and a half years shining the light of God into their dark lives and into their lost villages. Notice too the Galilee was known as the shadow of death. This was because of the frequent wars that were fought there between the Jews and their enemies. Matthew also mentions the Galilee of the Gentiles. This was the Golan Heights. This was the area north and east of the Sea of Galilee. That area was heavily populated by Gentiles. Rather than headquarter his ministry in the religious center of the nation, Jerusalem, Jesus would teach and he would work miracles in the war-ravaged Galilee, among common folk, among hard-working fishermen, even among Gentiles. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you heard that message before? That was John's message. It seems that Jesus took up where John had left off. They both came preaching the same message. Turn from your sin and submit your life to God. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Notice Jesus took their natural occupation, the natural vocation of Andrew and Peter, and he gave it spiritual significance. He tells fishermen that if they follow him, he will make them fishers of men. This is the way Jesus works in our lives. He redeems our ambitions, he he corrals our interests, and our training, and our vocations, and our hobbies. And then he redirects them back into an eternal direction. If you're a musician, Jesus wants to make you a musician for him. If you're a gardener, you can be a gardener for Jesus. If you're an athlete, you can be an athlete who brings glory to Jesus. Jesus will find some way to take your background and expand on it and refocus it and then use it for his glory. We believe that Simon and Andrew were brothers in a prosperous fishing business there along the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. The PA Fish Company, I guess. But there was something so irresistible about Jesus that when he called them, we're told they immediately left their nets and followed him. Notice there was no hesitation in their response. It was something about Jesus that when he called, they left all and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice Jesus found Peter and Andrew fishing, while he found James and John mending their nets. Could it be that Jesus also makes menders of men? as well as fishers of men? I think that's true. Peter was an evangelist. He was a fisher of men. But John, he was more a pastor. He was more a mender of men. John was known as the apostle of love. His letters encouraged the church to grow spiritually and to love one another. I believe that Jesus calls both fishers of men and menders of men. Verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. There were over 200 small villages in the Galilee during the first century. Jesus regularly toured these various villages, ministering in their various neighborhoods throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry. On Sundays he would preach down in Stone Mountain and then he would go up to Barrow County and then he would come back down to Stone Mountain. He just kind of had this circuit that he did. Had a man named Glenn that drove him. The last two verses summarize Jesus' ministry and his growing popularity. And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and He healed them. Jesus not only preached to their spirit, but He brought healing to their body. In fact, Jesus' ability to heal disease was proof of His power to save souls. Verse 25, Great multitudes followed Him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. These locations, if you put them on a map, constituted a 100-mile radius. It was a three-day's journey from Jerusalem up to Capernaum. The point is, is that all kinds of people from all different places were traveling long distances to come and see Jesus. Remember that the next time you complain about the 20-minute drive to church. Now we finished early tonight, and we did so for a reason. Because tonight, I want to give you the opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked earlier about temptation. We've talked today about temptation. We've talked tonight about temptation. And we brought out the point that you can be convicted of sin. You can be battling temptation. But here's the problem. Unless you have something more powerful than that temptation to draw on, even though you might hate it, even though you might flee from it, you'll get drawn right back to it unless you have something more powerful to take its place. And that's why tonight I would feel negligent. I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity tonight to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus is the baptizer. Just as John baptized with water, Jesus said, he would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and what does that mean? Well when you're baptized with water, you get lowered down under the water, you get immersed with the water. you come up saturated and drenched and dripping with the water. I believe that's what Jesus wants to do tonight with the Holy Spirit. He wants to immerse you in His spirit and in His power and in his love so that when you come out of up tonight and you come out of this room tonight you'll be dripping and saturated, and filled with the influence of God. And it will be so strong in your life that those temptations that were something to you last week won't be as strong this week. They'll dissipate because you'll be filled with the power and the love of God. I believe God wants to do that for you tonight. And so I'm just going to lay it out here to you, give you the opportunity. I'm going to pray for you. If you want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit tonight, I'm going to ask you just to step out of your seat and walk and stand down here in the altar. Stand here before God and say, God, I have a need. I need to be filled. I need, I need this power in my life. And I hear about temptation. It's all fine and good, but I need the power to resist it. And if that's your heart's plea tonight, if that's your desire, I want you just right now, uh, just step out of your seat and come forward and stand here in the altar. And we're going to pray for you to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when you come to the altar, you're not coming before me. You're, you're coming before Jesus. you know this is a pretty good response <laughs> but but you know what there still might be somebody else that that needs to come you, you don't all need to come but there may be somebody who needs to come and you know in your heart you it might be you and so i'm just going to wait just a second or two longer if you want to come and receive prayer for the holy spirit tonight you come now you know you're Christ- how many of you how many of you are not Christians? not Christians, raise your hand because before you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to give your life to Jesus. Is there anybody here that's not a Christian? So you're all Christians. So you know that you have the Holy Spirit already dwelling in you. But that's not the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit not only wants to dwell in you, He wants to come upon you and He wants to give your life power and strength And he wants to saturate you with his love and and his power and his grace. And that's what we're praying for tonight. So please, let's all join together. God in heaven, thank you that you... Let me just pray for you, okay? And then then I'll lead you in a prayer. Father, thank you so much that, that you are the baptizer of the Spirit. And that John told us That he could only do so much. That that he only dealt in the realm of water. But that was an outward. That was a superficial thing. But Jesus, you deal in the realm of the Spirit. And you don't just baptize with water. You just don't clean the outside of the cup. You clean the inside. You give power. You fill us. You overflow our lives. You saturate our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, as John told us to, we look to you tonight and we come to you and we ask you, Jesus, right now in this time, in this place, to baptize us with power from on high. Now, I'm going to pray. I want you to pray after me. Dear Lord Jesus, Dear Lord Jesus. baptizer of the Spirit, Come now into my life. Fill me with Your power. Overflow Your love into my life. Change me, Lord. Influence my life. Don't let me leave here the same. Baptize me with Your Spirit. Just as I've been baptized with water. Drench me, Lord, and fill me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Father, we just want to wait on You. We thank You so much for this this opportunity tonight. and We thank You, Lord, for the prayer that's just been prayed. We thank You for the power of Your Spirit. We want to live in this power day by day. You know, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in the book of Acts, when people were filled with the Holy Spirit, oftentimes the Lord spoke through words of prophecy. Or people spoke in gifts of tongues and praised God through gifts of tongues. We, we want to open ourselves up to that tonight. If, if there is someone here tonight who has a word from God, let me encourage you now to just speak it out. If there's someone who has a praise to God or maybe a a tongue that they'd like to speak a praise to God, you can do that. Speak that out now. I'm going to give you that opportunity tonight. As we wait on you, Lord, we just ask that you have your will be done. We read about Jesus' healing of the disease. And, and I believe that there's somebody here tonight and Jesus wants to heal you. And, and I believe he wants to heal your back. And I know my son has a, has a bad back and I, I don't, I'm not quite sure this is just for him. But it might be for him, but it might be for someone else too. But Lord Jesus, we, we, we want to call on your name tonight. And we believe that your spirit's here. And that Jesus is here. And, and we believe that you have the power to heal. And so Lord, my son has a bad back. I pray I lift him up to you tonight, Lord. And I ask that you touch and you heal his back. And if there's someone else here tonight, Lord, who has a bad back, Lord, I believe that you've spoken to me. I believe you're saying that there's someone here. You want to heal a bad back tonight. You just want to supernaturally take care of it. We thank you for that power. and, And we ask you, Lord, to do that in our midst tonight. We love you. Lord, Father, please fill Melinda with your joy. Lord, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We pray you'll lift this cloud that's over her, Lord. Just fill her with your happiness and your joy. Yes, Lord. Lord, just confirm to her heart that she is your child. And that she is pleasing to you. She is precious to you. What else, man? Now, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. It's not by our works. It's not by our good efforts. It's not by anything that we might merit. We receive the power of the Spirit the same way we receive salvation. We receive it by faith. So tomorrow, when you're tempted, and many of you will be, when you're tempted tomorrow, in that moment of temptation, You trust God. You trust in the power of the Spirit that's been given to you tonight. You trust that the Spirit will rise up within you with resources and reserves that you didn't know you had. And that as the joy of the Lord fills you up, as His determination fills you up, victory will be had You'll say no to temptation. You'll say yes to God. This is not a game. This is real. And this power is real. But we have to walk in it by faith. Thank you for tonight, Lord. And for the good work you've done in our hearts this evening. May our lives bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, our baptizer. And in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. God bless everyone. You're dismissed.